You may find this hard to believe, but 60 songs that explain the 90s, America's favorite poorly named music podcast is back with 30 more songs than 120 songs total. I am your host, Rob Harvilla, here to bring you more shrewd musical analysis, poignant nostalgic reveries, crude personal anecdotes, and rad special guests all with even less restraint than usual. Join us once more on 60 Saws that Explain the 90s every Wednesday on Spotify. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRigger.com and joining me on the other line after a flawless Twitter Spaces session to make a great big announcement, it's Andy Greenwald! Thank you and thank you to the patriots of this great country for supporting me. Chris, by the way, I feel like I should be hosting You're on the Other Line. You're, you're, oh, you know what? you so rarely host when I'm on the show. You so rarely uh, yeah, take no, the, the first run. It's wrong, and I would feel uncomfortable, but you are four, 5,000, how many more? 6,000 miles apart from each other right now. A lot of hours. It's uh, 6.15 p.m. here in Stockholm, Sweden. It's bright as noon outside. I'm still trying to get over it. I'm out here for uh, some Spotify meetings, uh, long-delayed Spotify meetings since like when The Ringer was acquired. And we're here with a lot of my coworkers. It's great to see you. It's great to see Kaya. I miss you guys, but it's been fun so far. Chris, what is the Gojo quotient? Like how similar is it to that episode of Succession? Like be honest. <laughs> they get asked about that a lot. Yeah, Succession bet. has been coming up so much. I've been in England and Sweden and I know that sometimes it's like Succession only has X amount of viewers, but whoever they are, I am around them all the time. All, like whether it's like they're just bringing it up, whether you overhear people talking about them in a pub, whether you overhear people talking about it online to go to the movies or whatever it is. Like people talk about that show a lot. But that's the self-selecting 21st century condition. Or in other words, no one knows who built the silo. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. I'm still watching silo because I'm here and because nothing works. Like I can't watch many of our favorite streaming services over here. So even as I'm here, like there's like this huge rush to figure out how to watch Vanderpump among yeah, some how, of my co- coworkers. How do you say peacock in Swedish? No abla, man. It doesn't work over here. <laughs> They're not here yet. So peacock, Paramount, Max was working. HBO Max was working, and then the other day I was going to watch Hundred Foot Wave, and it was just like we've switched to Max, and we're now not available in Sweden. Well, that's a bummer. Also, yeah. I thought it was because. It would have to be, they'd have to retitle the show in meters. Like a hundred foot wave is meaningless. Absolutely meaningless uh, in Europe. We have some notes that we want to get through. We want to, we want to run through the business of the town, but I should say that later in the show, I'm going to be joined by old friends and frequent watch guests, Josh yeah. Schwartz and Stephanie Savage, who brought you such television shows as The O.C. and Gossip Girl, Looking for Alaska, The Runaways, and are going to be here to talk about their new Apple TV Plus series, City on Fire which is midway through its run. I think four episodes are available out of the eight. So they're going to come on and talk to me once we, once we break the transatlantic and cross-continental connection. 
So I want you to ask them about the the so they, this is an adaptation of a Garth Risk Helberg yeah. am I right uh, novel that was set in the 1970s right. in New York City, but was updated to the 2000s, um, early 2000s, and it's just got my brain spinning about different novels that I think I want to update, but not quite to the present day. You know? Oh, absolutely. But also, I just think about like the different aesthetics of taking a book that was initially optioned to be set in the 70s, as the book is, around the 77 blackout. And the original screenwriter of the project was our guy Richard Price. Hell to yeah. Josh and Stephanie, who are magnificently talented and good friends, but are also very, very different than Richard Price. And they updated it to, to our time, our legendary era of 2003. Quite different. Uh, I, I, I was watching the first episode and I saw A1 Records and my, my heart grew a little bit. It was, it was cool to see some of the sights. Chris, they resurrected Don Hills which has been shut for many years. It is a club downtown New York that we spent a lot of time in. And uh, apparently it was just locked up and everything was still inside, which is a little disturbing. So I'm out here. Everybody's talking about succession. Mm-hmm. Many people are talking. People coming up to me on the street, tears in their eyes saying, sir, mm-hmm. sir, can you believe that the last great prestige show is ending? And Andy, I just wanted to do a little bit of a temperature check with you before we get to Sunday night's episode. Now, in uh, full disclosure hilariously enough, I may not be on the final episode of Succession recapping with the watch. That is a twist. Just because I don't know when I'm going to be able to see it and what time it will be and whether or not we're going to be able to make time. I will weigh in on this at some point on the watch, but it may not be on on Sunday night or Monday night or whenever whenever it is that you do yours. Does it sway you to know that I've reached out to Elon and his team about setting up the the, the comms (laughs) To make this possible, like, do you is feel it like you and DeSantis are going to recap the last up? Me and Casey DeSantis, is that what you said? Yes, that's <laughs> I, she, she's she's the fun one. Um, I, it's funny that people are coming up. First of all, people are going to be saying who won the finale of Succession, who lost me. I lost. Yeah, I lost my guy. It's over. I lost my number one boy. I know. Sunday it's night. so weird. We'll figure something out, and we will have show shows for you guys. Um, I, maybe I'll just it, call you like cousin Sal used to call Bill. Yeah. I think that would be great. Now, I won't be recording at the time, but it would be great to hear from you. Um, it, I think it's interesting that people are coming up to you on the Swedish streets yeah. um, talking about the loss of the show. Tear, tears in their fika. People, yeah. <laughs> people are coming up to me on all sorts of real and virtual streets being like, you absolute dolt. Shiv is the baby of the family. And my 20-minute long run last week about how Roman exhibits baby behavior is completely moot. So can I ask you a sincere question? Yeah. Did we talk about, when did we talk about that after the episode? Yes. On the, on the Sunday night pod. Yes. Okay. Cause I have no recollection of you making a big deal about this and people seemed very upset. I was like, did he really, for what? Like I, ag- I agreed with you also. I thought Roman was the youngest. For what it's worth, you were on like hour 21 in London. <laughs> you had, you had adopted, not even hour 21. You, you, you had adopted a new and controversial sleep schedule of trying to sleep for two-hour increments over a 40-hour span. So I think yeah. I could have said, Roman is Mondale the dog in disguise. And he would have been like, it's a really good point. It's a really strong point. So I would like to apologize about that. I still think my, I'd like to think my observations about Roman's character and behavior are, are apt. I'd also like to turn this around and say, well, why isn't it more obvious that Shiv is the baby? I think she's clearly written as the middle child, but maybe that's because she's just the most sensible in some ways and often is the swing vote 
which I feel like is kind of middle-ish. Also, who's to say Succession's not a folk song open to interpretation? I just saw an interview in The Hollywood Reporter with Brian Cox where he was like, maybe Logan's not dead. Yeah, I think Logan... Maybe he just wanted to set this all up so he could see his children's behavior. Like, I know it's not a specific one-to-one online thing, but Brian Cox is tweeting through it. Like, Brian Cox really liked the press run of five weeks ago and is starting to feel a little lonely. And that's kind of interesting to see. I, you say maybe it's open to interpretation. I would have agreed with you until Casey Bloys, the head of HBO, emailed, no, texted us from Cannes to say he was just talking to Jesse Armstrong and the team of executives to confirm that Shiv is the youngest. So yeah. we got we got fact-checked from the top. And thanks everyone for your thoughts and prayers and comments. The other thing we were wrong about before we get into just any finale preview is I was saying that, you know, HBO does have a seemingly unlimited budget. They just, they just plop Hope Davis in, pay her episodic to stand in a pew. And I was like, the place they could have cut corners is they did not put Sophie and Iverson Roy in the SUV on the streets of Manhattan. But those, those kids tweeted from the SUV. (laughs) They were there. So again, I apologize. I apologize. I just, I got a couple things wrong, but you know, we're honest here. So now we can pivot. I think accountability is, is what makes this show such a long-running success. And I think you it's and what makes... Our show, not succession. No, I think accountability is what we look for also in the DeSantis 24 campaign. So... Um, are you approaching Sunday night with a... What is it? Is it dread? Is it excitement? Is it melancholy? Is it instant nostalgia for what we've already experienced? What, 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 are, you, what are your feelings going into this last episode? I'm it's been re- a while since we had one of these. Is we had a finale, a series finale of a long-running show that we talked through mm-hmm. a lot of and that we weren't already like, hey, I think you guys may have driven this car right off the side of a cliff, David Benioff and David Weiss. I feel very excited because I think, and, and we'll talk about this in more fully next week, I imagine, we have two shows that are choosing to end at their absolute creative peak, which is Succession and Barry. And the feelings about disappointment or wishing it would come back or they still had some gas in the tank, those will come out over the next few weeks and certainly we'll start feeling it in a year when we wished we could, we kind of wish the show was back. Just the exhilaration of them being like, just ripping, ripping out the, ripping out the tubes like a, like an ER patient that wait, you know, like in a movie where they wake up and like, I don't want to be here. I know I've not received the medical care, but I am out of here. I think that's kind of thrilling and I'm very excited about where it's going to end. I think that it is, doing so with like full creative vigor and direction. And, you know, the show is set up to be in a place where everything is cascading down at the same time. So I'm expecting a very, very exciting finale. I don't, you know, there's going to be no sense, I think, of like fan service or petering out. I think this is, this is the, I'm steering into the positive of something ending at the top and not waiting for any decline. Yeah, I think the thing that has really been hitting home for me over the last few weeks, especially even as I think you loved the funeral episode, I think I loved America Decides, not Mm -hmm. more or less, but they were like, you know, just personal favorites, is I'm going to really miss like how fucking funny this show is. And what that that maybe loses a little bit of its traction when we're kind of caught up in the the fan dueling of of who is going to come out on top or run the company or, you know, whatever. And I am probably most curious about how this self-engineered final destination for the show, what 
what the consequences are of the drama of the entire series that sort of gets resolved in this episode to the extent that it will be. I don't think that death is the only way to yes. to fix anything here or to solve anything. But I do think that if we've had a, not a critique, but a note of succession over the last two seasons, especially it's been, huh? Like, you know, nothing really matters, you know, like whatever happens on an, any given episode tends to like work itself out in the next episode, even if it's just because out of convenience, these characters are placed in the same space again, physically, and they have to have banter with one another. And that's not going to happen two weeks from now. This is it. So what does that mean for how they wrote the series, how they wrote interactions between the characters? Will there actually be a period at the end of the sentence? You know, I mean, I think that with all the like, behind the scenes stuff that we've heard from interviews with Jesse, but not even with Jesse, but with some of the actors, Mm -hmm. it does sound like there was some fluidity in terms of like how they were thinking about this season, whether there would be another season. I'm sure it was written as the final season, but that that there might've been some, I don't know, maybe not some ellipses, but some semicolons, you know, where it was like, ah, and then maybe this could have happened. And I wonder if that thinking influences how they write the final episode. I will say though that like, We've seen some shows end and you're like, the penultimate episode was really the end. Mm-hmm. And the last episode is the like everybody having their final conversation and their hug, aka Breaking Bad, I think, to some extent. This does not feel that way. I feel like there's still a lot more plot they have to get through. There's still a lot more deal making. I think there's going to be a lot a lot of scars guard uh, based on the trailer. So I'm very, I'm very excited for it, but I have a lot of, I'm, I'm very curious to see it whenever I actually do. I, I've realized that and maybe it's due to my somewhat nervous disposition that I've generally loathed to make very loud public um, predictions or pronouncements. But considering how confident I was that the San Antonio Spurs were winning the draft lottery last week. but somehow, And just also about the birth order of the Roy children yeah, in general. I, 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 I put myself yeah. out on Front Street in the wrong way. And you were also just like, Ron, Ron going to Twitter is a brave new step into the future, which really, those th- that walks hand in hand with some of his core tenets of his campaign. Yeah, but I back-channeled that one. Um, I, I communicated my approval. Um, there are a couple things that I feel pretty confident about. One broadly is that I, 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 I'll just say it. I think I'm right about what the show is ultimately about in the broad strokes. And what I mean by that is, and this is natural. I'm not saying this is the wrong thing to do. This is fun. This is one of the reasons why we love serialized TV. But I do think the conversations about who's going to win about who's going to lose, about who's going to end and on the top, I think are a little bit misguided. I don't think this is a show that is going to, you know, as you point about death being the thing, I don't think people are going to end up in the grave in this episode, literally. I don't think that it's According going... to Brian Cox, there might be some people jumping out, out of the grave like The Undertaker. I would love that. <laughs> and so would he. Um, I, I think that the, 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 the consistent message has been that this is kind of a poison chalice. And that you can, quote unquote, win the title of CEO, but what is your empire? What, is, mm-hmm. what are the ruins that you're ruling over and what has become of your soul or your connections to anyone else who's no, who've known you? So it still seems most likely to me that Kendall becomes his father to a degree. That seems like the, the, the trajectory we've always been on and the trajectory that was brought into clear focus last week. So if we're going to get into like the prediction game of that, I think that makes sense. But what that means for I agree, everyone else. I agree else. with you. I agree with you with while I'm also willing to be completely surprised. I, w- I would I love to be expecting. surprised. I, I think the one question mark to me, and again, I, I think that this hasn't been the nature of the show, so I don't think we'll do it. But 
is there going to be any flash forward or glance at the at, at the future or even just sort of suggestion of the future? Or will I think it- they should go go full six feet under and down to the it- down to the use of the Sia song. You know, like just bang bang that that jam and then have like. What happens is Kendall is like, you know, in 2062, you know? Well, I think that's also, that's the question because as, to your point about like nothing mattering if the show just continued on and on and reversing itself in the pursuit of good jokes and good drama, I, I think ending now makes sense because I feel like it's baked in. Whatever end point Jesse chooses has to feel significant because I think underneath that is the sense that these are people who cannot change, who cannot be happy and will continue to wriggle and squirm for potentially decades, you know, in an attempt to kind of fix the problems inside of themselves. So where he puts the period at the end of the sentence is going to be particularly, is is everything. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a pretty obvious observation to make. But I, I, I'm really curious to see how he does it within the framework of what I, I predict will be a standard episode of Succession in that it won't suddenly go wobbly and montage at the end. I, I, I think yeah, I that, don't think so either. I don't I, think so either. I think the house style has been very successful, so so we'll stick with it. What else is happening in the town, man? Like I, I'm so far removed from the streets. I'm so far removed from what's happening inside of uh, inside of Silicon Valley slash Hollywood yeah, right I now. I think that's the problem. I <laughs> yeah. I, I did want to um, just touch on one little kerfluffle from this week that I thought was interesting. It lasted about 18 hours. Uh, which I believe is the time difference between us. So it probably didn't happen to you at all. But as you alluded to, HBO Max became Max this week. And one of the victims of the transition was the traditional credit order that has been guild mandated and understood within movies and TV for decades. So someone pointed this out on Twitter. It went viral. People started noticing that instead of, you know, if you'd look at, I'm just going to pull an example. I don't even know if it was on there, but like, Taxi Driver, it didn't say director Martin Scorsese, screenwriter Paul Schrader. It said creators, and it listed Scorsese and Schrader and all the executive producers as if everybody had done the same thing and who did what didn't matter. Yeah. And this was pointed out. People got very upset. And um, Max Corporate pivoted very quickly from digitally deleting the booze of college students from David Zaslav's commencement speech last week to handling this next crisis which was by saying oh, this was an oversight, like, you know, it was a rush to transfer things and it was a, a, U, a UI thing and we can, we'll address it. Now, first of all, they had to say that because as I said, credits are guild mandated and there would have been legal action if Martin Scorsese was not listed as the director of the movies he directed. So of course they were going to say that. I do think it's significant. I do think it matters because it strikes me as saying the quiet part The loud. credits or the mistake? The, the mistake. Yeah, Because I think it is a very, very noisy, even if it was accidental, tell as to what the tech corporate overlords think of what business they're in, which is to say that Taxi Driver, um, Vanderpump Rules, Last Chance Kitchen, Bluey, whatever, this is content. It's just content. It's just stuff that goes in boxes. And the people who make content are no different than people on TikTok. They're just content creators doing their best to just fill the void. And you it would it seems prissy or highfalutin or even just old-fashioned to be like, "Hey, I wrote that. Those are my words." Or I'm interested in who wrote that because I might want to see other words that they wrote. And I found it very dispiriting, very um and hopefully 
kind of a flashing warning light to Pete to our good friends in the Directors Guild, for example, who are currently negotiating with the same AMPTP that the writers are striking from. Um, I I don't really have a take on this as much as my joke about the Silicon Valley slash Hollywood thing was not really a joke because one thing that I think is becoming really apparent to folks who are following uh, the, I guess, lack of negotiations, the straight up, like the labor issues mm-hmm. afflicting Hollywood right now are, uh, is, is the sort of influence of Silicon Valley slash tech companies on the movie and television making business. And that the one, the thing that we grew up thinking of as Hollywood and the levers of power in making movies and television are really now for the most part subservient to, if not literally tech companies like Apple and Amazon or Netflix, they think like tech companies and they have to think like tech companies because they're making technology products in a lot of way. And culturally, in my experience, technology moves at a different pace and it with a different set of standards, not, it's not a qualitative judgment, but a different set of standards than say, um, the idea that you might have in your head of how in a, uh, uh, at a movie studio, there are departments for everything and everybody is like, all I do is take still photographs on sets and then think about how they should be serviced to publications. Mm-hmm. Or all I do is make sure that the tiniest edge of a font looks good when we blow it up to billboard size and put it in Times Square or whatever. And I don't know necessarily that engineers who move technology products think about things in the same way. When you think about when you get a, an iPhone update and then you get another one because it's fixing the bugs in the previous update. And you're right. It could be very much, you know, a shot across the bow at, at quote unquote creators and, and how they're viewed by technology companies. But it could also be that like, that was a bug in the update that yeah. they rolled out. I, and now they're doing it, another, which isn't to say it's good because you can see the cultural clash that's what I'm between saying. these two things. And it's it actually is a little bit chilling because you have to imagine that that's going to make it even more difficult going down the line for these people to find common ground. I totally agree with that. I don't think there was malice behind this. I think it would be, I mean, even just, it beggars belief that they would provoke the guilds like as they're sitting down trying to negotiate with them. I mean, they're not sitting down with the writers, but they are sitting currently, but they are sitting down with the directors at this moment. And nobody cares about a directed by or a film by credit like directors do. So, and, sure. and Leslie Linka Gladder, the, the veteran director who's head of the DGA, was incensed and, you know, commented on it immediately. Um, but I do think that it's a very revealing mistake about the culture clash that may, and the cultural divide that may be ultimately impossible to, to, to bridge. And then I just think, you know, there's just little movements that you should just, people who are industry watchers just should keep an eye on. I mean, there's no news from the writer's strike, like, as Mike Schur, who's one on the negotiating committee and the veteran showrunner, um, whose new show with our buddy Shea Serrano Primo is on Freevee now. I can't wait to check it yeah. out. He, you know, he, as he said in an interview recently, he's like, Sherman Oaks isn't that far away. Like, they will go negotiate with the studios as soon as the studios ask to negotiate again. But they're focused on the directors right now. But there are, I, I think there is unanimity in the sense that people believe whatever is on the other side of this is going to be different. And that might be different only inside the industry before it reaches outside the industry. But you just look at little things. You look at this, and then the next piece of news that, that, that's in deadline is that the, the co-heads have scripted at our baby, AMC, veteran programmers who have good relationships with people in the town and have worked on successful shows for AMC, Emma Miller and Carrie Galuli, um, are jointly leaving AMC to go work at Netflix. 
Right, right, just right before we took over. Right before we took over. Now, we d- some people say we leaned on them, and I, I think that's that's unfair. We are we are strong but firm. You know, we are not Logans. We are Ewans. I think in that we are ultimately, you know, uh, on the side of good. We're just a little crusty. You know, maybe we don't, you know, present well in meetings. But but genuinely, like this is a specific instance. Their decisions are their own. It, it is probably unfair to just turn that into tea leaves. But I'm just you just notice that like who which fish can survive in this shrinking ocean. This doesn't mean AMC is done. I hope not. Mm. Um, you know, th- th- it's not necessarily pulling a thread that will lead to something, but you just should notice they didn't displace the current heads of scripted and Netflix. They just got added to the team because Netflix makes a lot more stuff than other people do. And so, you know, just just noting, just noting it like, like you would with an anxious uh, thought or feeling. You note it. I have nothing really else to, to hit you with. Um, you know, I know that Quentin Tarantino is at Cannes. He announced that his film, next and last feature film, will be The Critic, which has been this much-discussed idea. Initially, some people thought it was going to be about Pauline Kael. It turns out it's going to be about a a movie critic who works at a pornography magazine in the 1970s. That seems right. Um, And then the only other bit that I saw today before we got on was just that Citadel, and I I, I really bring this up for you, has been renewed for season two. I know that that was a real... They, they, they were kind of the ref was underneath the tarp looking at that one an instant replay yeah. for a while. Um, but it's coming back season two and Joe Russo is going to be directing the entire season. It's so it's so great. I mean, that that alone just gets me fired up, you know, that he was just like he it's 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 Al Pacino and Godfather three. You know, he, he was ready to just cruise into retirement legacy of great work. And he was like, no, this this story needs me. This is this is what I need to turn my attention to. So, look, I mean. It, it's a. This is still part of the same conversation we're having. Like I think Citadel is pretty objectively and subjectively awful, but it's probably very successful. I don't know if it's successful like to justify the cost, but then again, the cost doesn't really matter to Amazon in terms of what its objectives are globally. So this was fait accompli that it was going to get renewed, um, and so so the great the great work goes on. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to bring up the fact that that that. Blur made a surprise new album and the first single's really good. But, you know, if it, if I was hosting the show, I would have led with that and then just watch the, the listeners just... Watch the <laughs> listens go down. No, I, yeah. I, I'm, I like to front load with really important news like like us commenting on Ron DeSantis's Twitter announcement 48 hours later. And just like things we got wrong about Succession last week. Because pod, you know, yeah. it's the only thing better than podcasts are podcasts about podcasts. <laughs> the re-listenables. Andy, I can't wait to listen to you and Josh and Stephanie talk about City on Fire. I'm going to check check out some more episodes as I my vacation continues. Well, my vacation really starts. I was still working here, you know. It's just I. This is the idea of dispersed workforce, you know, or you know, like I'm I'm remote. We're not we're not judging you. We haven't seen Kai and I were talking about it. We haven't seen too many pictures of like Aperol spritzes at midday on on your social media feeds. Well, I am going to go get a Negroni. So uh, it was great to see you. It was great to see Kaya briefly. And I can't wait to listen to your interview with Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage. Honesty, integrity, Ryan24. Um, and we will be back in some form. We will have a podcast after the Succession finale. And we will have more podcasts next week in the wake of the end of Succession and Barry. Um, but now, yeah, let's get into my interview with Josh and Stephanie. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com watch. That's mintmobile.com 
slash watch $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Okay, now I'm thrilled to be joined once again by old friends of both me and the podcast, Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage. Welcome to what I feel like it's the fifth studio you've spoken to me in over the years. And how do you feel about this one? Uh, very, very personal. Love what you've done with the place. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Is that, is that your rock garden in the hallway? Yes. Yeah. I'm the one that came up with the name Studio Six. I just thought that really had a nice catchy thing that made people feel comfortable. Um, thrilled to have you guys in. We're going to talk about your new Apple TV Plus series, City on Fire, and a bunch of other things. But at, right at the top, we should say the circumstances of this interview. It's a funny time in Hollywood. We ran into funny. each other. Not, not funny, ha-ha. Um, funny like Joe Pesci and Goodfellas funny. We ran into each other on the picket line last uh, last week or the week before. and At the Paramount Studios. And talked about what was going on and how maybe we could still find a way to talk during all of this. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's def- definitely different people have different perspectives on behavior during the strike. I think for us, uh, the show premiered two weeks ago, post-strike. Yeah. And out of solidarity with our guild, we did not attend our premiere. We did not attend our press junket that Apple put on. We did not attend our FYC event. But because we've been friends for close to 20 years now, uh, we felt like this was a a safe space to talk. Yeah, we kind of got to know each other the same year that the show is set, which gives us a lot of things to talk about. It's kind of shocking. Um, Yeah, I was the first thing. I mean, look, I was always going to be in the tank for this because I was in New York in that particular tank during the era the show is set. And we should say that City on Fire is based on the novel by Garth Risk Halberg. That was uh, quite popular when it was published a few years ago. And that book is very much about downtown New York City and the music scene. uh, But it is set during the blackout summer of 1977. You have, I think, very cleverly and successfully updated the book to another memorable blackout summer in which there was a lot of good music downtown, which was the summer of 2003. Summer 2003 is when the OC premiered. So I, I think that's pretty trippy. Like, this era is both nostalgia for us, but also very much lived experience, right? What was, talk to me about the decision to pick that era and also how quite different I think your 2003 was from the characters in the show. (laughs) Well, I had read the book originally when it came out. Josh and I were both very interested in it when it got published just because of, you know, the world it was set in and how it was described. We both bought it. (laughs) It sat on my bedside table (laughs) for several years. And and it makes an impact. It is an extremely big book. It's a nice nice doorstop, paperweight. Yep. It's got stuff inside that you can look at even if you don't read it. That's true. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why you recommended it to Josh because you knew if it was not illustrated, he <laughs> never pictures, would have picked yeah. it up. Um, and when I read it, I, f- I was really struck by, uh, to me, what felt like, oh, make such a great like limited series or um, sort of a long-form narrative uh, if it was adapted because you could kind of organize the material in mm-hmm. a different way. You could pull out the mystery and the investigation and that to me I was sort of starting to see like a a clean through line of that then of course it was not available because a big part of the narrative of the book is that it was bought in galleys by Scott Rudin's or optioned by Scott Rudin's company um, to adapt as a feature yeah although you thought maybe it was an FX series as well I think it started as a I think everything Scott Rudin starts when he always would he famously would uh, do a lot of things, but famously with books, he would go in galleys uh, and say, like, I'm going to make a major motion picture, Oscar-winning thing with this. And then often they would not 
come to fruition because how do you turn Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chabon into a two-hour movie? And, and I think there's now some of those projects moved to TV. And mm-hmm. I think the that version of it was maybe set up at FX for a while as a potential miniseries. Yeah, but interesting. Anyway, it, it, it shook free. It did. And so when we um, originally got our deal at Apple, we just made this big long list of like everything that – don't worry about, like, if we have access to it, if it's available, if we can afford it, just, like, what are some projects that we'd love to do? And that was, it was on the list, and it turned out that it had become available. So then we started talking. Then Stephanie's like, now you must read this book. <laughs> <laughs> there was no more avoiding it. There was no more avoiding it. And um, the 1970s is, like, a pretty big lift for production. Like, it's mm-hmm. very expensive and time-consuming. A lot of resources go into recreating that, especially New York in the 70s is, like, virtually impossible without, you know, a lot of visual effects. And Where do they um, shoot The Mandalorian? Work. I feel like you would have a better <laughs> opportunity to recreate yeah, 1970s you did, New York. You could do that on the volume. Yeah, I think the volume. it would feel yeah. real weird. But. Yeah. So there was that issue. There's also, like, for a younger audience, the 1970s is now a very long time ago. Um, Sadly, even for some of us in this room, yeah. it feels <laughs> increasingly like a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then... Uh, we were also talking about how when Garth was writing the book, um, he was kind of using the 1970s as a way to talk about the period of the early 2000s in New York City. And we were like, well, we could kind of flip that and we could use, could actually set it then. And then when we realized that like, well, there was a blackout in the summer of uh, 2003 um, that really got us thinking about like maybe this would be possible and it could be a really fun way to um, bring in all the things we love about the book, but update it in a way that still felt relevant. And we also had a lot of conversations about kind of that time period in New York. And now that having 20 years have passed since 9-11, that people would feel comfortable with storytelling in that space mm-hmm. um, and not feel like it was too soon or exploitative or... Yeah, and we you. thought it would be, as Steph was saying, an easier lift production-wise. And how different does New York look now <laughs> than it did in 2003? And then COVID hit, and suddenly we were like, what are we going to do with all these outdoor eating shelter shacks whatever they're called and oh, right. e-bikes all the yurts and, and things yeah, yeah there's all these there was some stuff kind of post-covid but in the same way you know as steph was saying 1970s new york was a period where people were not sure if new york was going to survive mm-hmm. um post 9-11 people were not sure if new york was going to survive as a city and when we started working on this during covid it was another kind of existential moment for new york so all these time periods were kind of ex- speaking to each other and echoing each other thematically in a way that was uh, interesting to us as well. I, I also just found like the spirit of adaptation really appealing, right? Because I I, I just generally think that books are, are books and they exist and, and everyone should read them and enjoy them, even Josh sometimes. And <laughs> um, finding what you as creative people connect to in it and love about it or intrigued by it and then being able to take that for a ride is, you know, helps the spirit of the piece. And you can feel that in the pilot of what, of what you guys did. Um, and when we went to Garth with it and we said, hey, what do you think if we, you know, updated and changed the time period, he was actually very excited about it and was like, that's what adaptation is for. The book is the book and the TV series is going to be its own thing. And so his support actually gave us a lot of, a lot of wind in our sails to move forward. I mean, his middle name is Risk, right? (laughs) I mean, like he was, he was ready for it. So uh, 
just drilling down a little bit, like what was, you said there was, a, I mean, it's a one-to-one thing. There's a blackout, there's a music scene. Mm-hmm. What were the more challenging things, separate and apart from production values, that you felt were, were difficult in terms of finding, finding the, the, the analog for 2003 or finding, you know, grounding the book in 2003? Well, we also wanted to kind of pull through that thread of the 1970s that was in the book, which we wanted to do in a subtle way with the production design and the costume design um, and thinking about how the characters would be pulling that thread themselves Mm -hmm. and the idea that the city uh, brought in it sort of brought people to it that were looking for that kind of experience like everyone is nostalgic for like New York in the 70s. Yeah. Even if you completely miss the boat on that, you're trying to kind of pastiche that experience um, and, and bring it into your own world. Um, so thinking about how we could do that with how we built the Fallon Stary and how we kind of had this idea that somewhere in that house is this giant pile of like thrift store clothing that mm-hmm. everyone just kind of put on in the morning and, and built their looks. Um, and then also in thinking about the music. I think that's so smart, too, because at the time, being in New York, like what everyone was obsessed with was 1981, which mm-hmm. was 20 years before. And except when you yourself are in your early 20s, that basically is like the Victorian era. Yeah. And so now from this vantage point, being like, that really wasn't that long ago. And the people who were in ESJ were, were probably working their day jobs being like, oh, people care now? Yeah. You know, it, it's not exactly like everything is cleanly partitioned to be one era or another. It's right. always in a conversation with itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the idea that people are always nostalgic for the moment of New York that they feel they missed, yeah. you know? So now, obviously, there's a, you know, we a lot of the actors in, in the show, the younger actors were born around this period, like Wyatt Olaf was born in 2003. Uh, that's, and, that's tough. And, <laughs> it's tough, tough to hear it. And, yeah. and uh, Chase <laughs> Sweet Wonders is only a couple years older than that. And so, you know, they're nostalgic for this period of New York, you know, and Jemima Kirk lived through this period very vividly and talks about it, Mm -hmm. you know, and was probably at Don Hills and uh, up to stuff. And, you know, for her, that's like the last moment that New York was cool. You know, that's her perspective now. Of course, it was also the year that CBGBs turned into a John Varvatos. So there were people who had been there since the 70s who would look at that period as like the beginning of the end. And that's what's interesting about that New York experience is everyone gets there and feels like they just missed it. Yeah, there was no moment during my time in New York where I felt like, I got it. This is like, I was Mm -hmm. here to receive it. And I was there 99 to 2016. Everybody was just trying to, (laughs) you know, well, we'll do our best, but there's always the person right before you sort of looking down looking down their glasses, being like, you don't know what it used to be like. Yeah, yeah, and that period kind of post 9-11, preoccupy Wall Street, it's a really fertile interesting time in New York, in the country. It's just, it felt like a rich, a rich time to set, set the show. And then obviously we've talked a bit about, you know, meet me in the bathroom, uh, where you are featured, thanked. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a talking head. Yeah. I'm, I'm in there talking about all the times I missed going to misshapes. Like I, I was like, <laughs> kind of like the, what's the reverse Zelig where I was just outside <laughs> and didn't quite make it in. And that book also was like a, a really wonderful, really wonderful book, but also really made it feel like that was a moment. And that is a moment that's worth kind of, even as a backdrop in the show, chronicling. So, Yeah, I think the thing about, and shout out to my friend Lizzie Goodman, who wrote mm-hmm. that great book, like what's, uh, it, it's kind of amazing to, 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 to talk to everyone in that and, and realize that 
that moment, most of those bands didn't quite make it. Like, it's the story of bands who almost did and had a moment or fumbled it or were popular insularly. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's not really, history isn't really written by the, by the, by the winners always. No, and, and as the inspiration for our, our band in the show, mm-hmm. Jonathan Fire Eater was kind of one of the big inspirations that we talked about with Jonathan Leahy, our music supervisor, yep. in figuring out the sound for this, for this band. So I think the other thing that I, I really enjoyed and appreciated about the show is I think you keenly understand something, which is that an era isn't a TV show. One of the things that I really loved about the the pilot particularly is just the, I think it's really well constructed, not to get too inside baseball about it, but it's really brilliantly constructed and it's really dynamic and it's remarkable how efficient it is in terms of introducing these strands of the world introducing the importance of a band and then showing us the band and getting through it all in that in that first hour what was the process like for you guys you've been working together now for as we said for two decades mm-hmm. what was it like saddling up again and trying to tackle something like this and turning it into just even just in the context of that first hour well it was a big project because i think the sort of what i felt reading the book the first time and then revisiting it like really with our thinking caps on really going like okay we do have do actual this. Thinking caps. Thinking caps. Oh, are they matching? Yeah. Or mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, they're like a. That's cute. Little sleeping sleeping cap. Sorry. Yeah. That's because you go to sleep and then Stephanie. <laughs> yeah. and Stephanie does all the work. <laughs> and they wake up and it's done. Yeah, incredible. I don't have to read the book. Um, that that idea that like there was sort of this beautiful mind map of how to like adapt the show turned out to not be true. Like mm-hmm. the beautiful mind map was like phase one, and then there were like eleven more phases, and that became pretty clear as soon as we started writing. That as much as we had in our minds kind of cleared out like and 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 winnowed down the story that there was still more story that and more characters that needed to come out so that mm-hmm. was sort of the next the next phase and then figuring out how to start the story in a way where you were introducing everyone and unlike a book that has chapters where this chapter is about this person this chapter is about mm-hmm. that person we were never going to get through the story if we didn't start weaving all the storylines together and pulling them tighter and pulling them right. tighter yeah and also we ended up writing this ourselves it's the first time we didn't have a writer's room mm-hmm. um which may not be an option moving forward depending on how um this all goes with the strike but uh that was just because it was covid mm-hmm. when we first started the idea of doing a zoom room we had other shows that were doing a zoom room and they just felt really challenging and the book is so long it's like 900 pages that we felt like by the time anyone else finished the book, we would have already broken a lot Mm -hmm. of the season. So it's the first time that we've ever just kind of done it, the two of us, um, which was a really fun, exciting challenge that we will never do again, (laughs) regardless of what happens. We figured out finally how to use the collaboration feature on Final Draft. This is some real inside baseball. (laughs) Yeah. That is a scary tab. I'm very (laughs) impressed that you cracked that code. You could like teach a seminar. And, you know, every adaptation is different. Um, you know, this book, obviously, we keep talking about is voluminous, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of characters, and there were some major characters that we actually excised out of the book and gave their role to some of the other characters mm-hmm. who were in the book so they would have more agency. William, you know, um, character in particular, kind of absorbed uh, one of the other major characters from the book that we cut. But, like, when we were adapting Looking for Alaska, that was obviously a book where, for, first of all, some people view it as a, you know, know that book inside mm-hmm. and out. And if you don't include this one line, it's, you've ruined yeah, the whole it's thing. it's a sacred text. It's a sacred text. But that was really about addition, mm-hmm. you know? It was about how do we fill the book out and go to some places and change some, and break from the perspective of the book and fill out some of those supporting characters. And this was a, this was a different task. This was about kind of, not whittling, but sort of molding the clay in a different way. You know, subtraction, I guess, is the simplest way of putting it. 
And I think that one of the most remarkable things for me as a fan of your work over over a period of time <laughs> um, is I don't, I don't know if you see the clip of like, how does he keep getting away with it? Like, how do you guys keep finding generationally appealing, talented, attractive people to be in these shows? <laughs> like, you know, it, it's, it's as true of uh, City on Fire as it was with Looking for Alaska or The O.C. or Gossip Girl. Like, it is really casting dependent, I think, in a way, because you have to, f- and it's very, very hard to find young people who can carry the load of, of some of the stuff that you guys write or that people want to watch. Chase Sweet Wonders and Wyatt Olaf, who I was not familiar with either, either of them before, are fantastic. And immediately, I was like, I'm, I'm interested in them, even though I don't understand the full tapestry of what they're involved in. Um, have you got this casting down to a science now, or is it dumb luck every time? Well, shout out to Patrick Rush, yeah, our casting so director. Yeah, it starts with the right person in yeah. that job. Um, who who did OC with us, who did Looking for Alaska, who did Chuck with us, who did uh, Runaways, and, and now Sitting on Fire. So we've worked with him over many, many years. Shout out to David and Lindsay, who did Gossip Girl casting. Um, but he has a great eye for this and knows kind of, he, he's just keeping tabs of who's out there, who's bubbling, who's ready to have their, have their moment. It was interesting because this was our first time casting entirely on Zoom. Mm. And so we had to do a chemistry read with uh, Wyatt and Chase. And you're like, how are you going to do a chemistry read on Zoom? Like, how how could that possibly work? And yet, there was chemistry. <laughs> so if there could be, yes. if, if chemistry is happening on Zoom, then it's probably going to happen when we're all together on screen. It, and and uh, you had, so what was it like navigating with Wyatt this world? Like, it, it, was it like telling him he's going to be in Westeros? Like, like <laughs> Yeah, we've gotten kind of used to this, I will say, because we, we had this a bit, we've had this a bit now as, as we've, we started, we were in the same generation as the actors that yes. we were working with. And obviously now it feels like we have the fireside chat and these actors like sit at our feet and are like, tell us about the aughts. What was it like? <laughs> so we, we've kind of gotten used to that that uh, that role. Do you invite them over to sit on the Teen Choice Awards surfboard we do. that you used to have in your office? We, and we be start like, off, this we is... hand them a trio yeah. and, then we, and we go from there. We give them a, a Zoom. Be like, no, no, eyebrows, that was on purpose. Yeah. Like, that's what we were all doing. Um what, speaking of like just the sort of generational shift, so as you said, like there isn't there's an energy to things like the OC where it was like kind of I mean y- y- no one on the production side was in high school at the time, but but not the, the age difference wasn't too far apart. Mm-hmm. It is it is farther apart now. <laughs> Do you find yourself having a different interest in the young people's stories in these stories as you are telling them at this point in life? I don't know that we have a different interest in them. Or perspective, I, think, I guess. Interest yeah, is the wrong word. I, I think we're we're still super compelled by those stories. I will say, especially Josh, having experience as a parent, we're maybe a little better at those stories than we were in the OC. Although the OC, we we did come from a very pro parent perspective, yeah. and it was so far from uh, where where we were in our lives at that time. Uh, but there is a moment where you start to go. A, there's that moment when the actor comes in to read for the parent role, even on the CW, where it's a young parent, and you're like, oh my God, I could now be playing the parent on this oh, yeah. particular show. Um, and yeah, I think you definitely start to identify with with some of those stories. But I also, we love having these young actors around and getting their experience and trying to weave as much of them and their personality and what's interesting them into the shows as well. I think we, yeah. we like to listen. And I think like working with Jemima on this was really interesting because she was sort of having that experience of like, oh, if this was, you know, not even maybe 10 years ago, but like 
five years ago, like I might be playing. Yeah, she, the, she literally was a girl yeah, not too long ago. Exactly. Now she's a, a, woman. a woman and mother. Yeah. yeah. And and then using some of that um, in the story, like we rewrote the first big fight that she has with her husband, Keith, to include a reference of like, you know, I was that girl and then I'd strangled her so we could have this, that mm-hmm. idea of like growing up and and putting some of that like carefreeness, that, you know, exuberance, that selfishness a- away to be an, an adult and then feeling that like you're kind of getting punished for that or you're like now something's missing from you that that you gave up yeah. um, in pursuit of something else which that kind of a story felt sort of unique and and timely I'd say to kind of where we are in our lives yeah no we have uh, different perspectives on some of the, <laughs> how these how do you think these things can play out in adulthood but also New York as a city of perpetual youth and the the promise of perpetual excitement in youth and that's in the show as well and mm-hmm. like you know Keith Keith goes downtown, you know, yeah. we won't spoil. I should have said this at the beginning, but like, we're not really going to spoil. I think we haven't, and I don't see any yeah. reason to spoil particular episodes. We're just the end when we're recording. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it was, it was all a dream. Um, no, I, think, I mean, the big tip off for, for, uh, for Regan, for Jemima's character that Keith is up to no good is that he's listening to the Libertines. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I wanted to talk. There, there are these little things where I'm like, okay, what, when, the they're flipping through the vinyl and the, the one behind the record that's important is the thrills so long to the city mm-hmm. or whatever. I'm like, yeah, I, I played Big Sur recently. It's a pretty good track. Someone's <laughs> paying attention back there. And I do have to say, you mentioned the club Don Hills, which mm-hmm. was the site of, like, I think Miss Shape started there, but um, Tiz was, was the big club night yeah. there before. And I think broadly, Josh got it right when he said that people were do, people were there up to no good. I think it was primarily an up to no good spot. Um, I'm just and, going off of what I've heard you say about the scene. Yeah. Oh, no, that's right. I'm the, I'm the guy you go to. Um, you resurrected it. Like, you just, you went there and you filmed there and it was there. Is this accurate? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was it was basically there. It was kind of like a storage facility. Like, it was a lot of just tables on top of things. But it was there. And Aaron Osborne, our production designer, uh, got very into, like, recreating it and bringing it back to its 2003 glory, down to the wallpaper. That is the actual wallpaper that was on the wall in 2003. Yeah, they reproduced it. And Jesse Parrott's, our director, had spent a lot of time in there as well. And so he also was like... This wasn't over there. It was over here. And like the the wallpaper and the, we actually cut a scene that took place in the bathroom, but the wallpaper in the bathroom was the same. Um, and so- A lot of stuff happened in those bathrooms. Well, yeah. By the way, I was yeah. going to say every single person in our crew who was yeah. around in that era was like, man, I spent some time in the bathroom at this place. And we're like, uh, yep, those walls could talk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's actually something worth talking about is that the, I think this show more than any other- was one where we really went to the crew and said, like, bring your own experience mm. to this. Um, it started with a conversation around 9-11, which we had at the very beginning of the show in our first big concept meeting to just say, like, normally it wouldn't be the case that, like, if you're the prop master, people are going to ask you mm-hmm. to weigh in on the wardrobe or the set design. But, like, if anything feels ever like we're not being respectful or something feels thrown away in a way that doesn't feel good to you, like speak up. If you have a personal story that you want to share, that you want to incorporate, speak up. On on the first day that we started shooting, we actually did the the, um, Charlie Sam walk by of Ground Zero, Mm -hmm. and we had a moment of silence at the top of that uh, day and Bobby Kennedy, our AD, gave a really lovely speech. Um, you can always count on a Kennedy. For a totally, those <laughs> Kennedys well, give good yeah. speeches. Depends which Kennedy we're talking That's about. That's true. It, it's yeah. it's less accurate. political moments. It might be <laughs> great point here. Yeah. 
Um, no relation. So it started with that. And then it, it also just kind of went, it went into like the Don Hills experience. It went to the Lower East Side experience and people were really activated to just bring themselves and and put themselves, um, in the show and the work they were doing, whether it was like the onset painter Mm -hmm. doing the graffiti or some of the people that we worked, worked out, uh, reached out to, to be like our ghost artist or everyone was just like there and and bringing their own experience in a way that I think made that part of the show feel really rich and really dense because no one was relying on mm-hmm. like the internet to like tell them what to think about something. I also imagine that's good um, in a way like anti-COVID measures in terms of like the, the, the chill of being separated for so long that we can actually bring everyone in with, with yeah. their own enthusiasm and their own invested interest. And I mean, obviously I can only speak from my perspective, but I, I appreciated that in the show, which is to say that like at the age that I was and that some of the characters were when 9-11 happened, it was fucking horrible, but it was also horrible in a crazy distancing way. I was lucky enough not to be personally touched by it. It was just the city I lived in. And you went on with it thinking, I guess this is what happens when you're 23 or 24. And then there's concentric circles beyond that, that adults, and I think as an adult now, it would have been much more, much more affected by it just mm-hmm. because of this nice feeling of being connected to the world and, and everything like that. I, I think that it was well done in terms of how present it was for some characters versus others. Yeah, and you're always going to be careful not to be exploitative. And, you know, it, it is a time period, as Steph was saying earlier, where it's been 20 years, but for a lot of people, it still feels like yesterday, and it's still a little bit of a third rail to even try to mm-hmm. to draw some elements from in a fictional storytelling context. So it was something that we, we you know, tread gently and uh, and as respectfully as we could. I guess in this in the spirit of of nostalgia and looking back, I wonder if the experience of making the show and being like deep into two thousand three from these characters' perspective and from just a New York perspective has caused you to have any different thoughts about the o c which is now twenty years old. Um, it's funny to think about how our art is always looking backwards to a degree, even if it's set in the present because what informed you, Josh, in terms of the creation of the o c was things that had filled you before that mm-hmm. point, you know? And so to think about um, those characters coming home, if they ever come home uh, so far through four episodes, they don't go home very often. <laughs> but if they did and turning on Fox at night, they would be seeing Seth Cohen, which is like a world away, even no, though it's all 2003. Yeah, and we actually, funny, we set Looking for Alaska in 2005, which is when the book was published. And it just felt like it was hard to imagine those characters living in a post Yep. Uh, Instagram world, just the way they were rendered in the book. And we did have a moment where one of the characters is watching. You hear <laughs> a little bit of the theme song in the background uh, as, as a reference. Uh, here, it did not feel like the, 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 these people were watching no. the OC at night. Or were, had televisions. Or had televisions. Or, yeah, yeah, they weren't coming home yeah. for appointment, <laughs> appointment viewing. Um, I know. I, we, we, we were like, we we're just kind of, I guess we're going to become like Oliver Stone was to the 60s. That's going to be us to like the <laughs> TRL era, which, you know, that's a that's a corner for us. He's had a long career. Yeah. Um, I think you would have to make a movie called The Libertines, right? To right. Like to, Just to, to go at a conspiracy theory about what happened to them. What I think ha- we know what happened to them. Why we do. <laughs> what what has your relationship with the OC been like recently? Because I know that Rachel Bilson and uh, she was co hosting with, with Yes. Yeah. Uh, doing a rewatch podcast that you guys were involved with or guested on as well. What has that been like to be nostalgic about something that I imagine doesn't feel too distant? It's been great. I mean, I will say the, um, again, a little bit with with COVID and pandemic, just that idea of like reaching back out to people who were important in your life mm-hmm. and just because of how life goes kind of can fall away. Um, that was already in motion. And the and the podcast really 
um, I think just accelerated that. And we have now been back in touch with people that we hadn't talked to in a really long time on the show. I think the most surprising thing for us is when the show ended, I think we were like, well, that, that failed. You know, that was, that was my takeaway. Just, it was a bumpy road. About, about the whole project or the, the way it ended? I mean, I, I had a hard time kind of separating those two mm-hmm. ideas. It's just like, it ended, I fucked this up, and, uh, you know, that's on me, and I'm going to hang my head in shame. And then we moved on very quickly, and <laughs> we were doing other stuff. But I think the, the thing that's been really wonderful and um, been very helpful with perspective is that it feels like more people want to talk to us about the OC now mm-hmm. than they did even when it was first on. And either because it it means more to people now as they get older when they look back on that time in their lives or because of streaming just how many more people can mm-hmm. discover the show or rewatch the show and so the fact that like we made something and 20 years later people still want to talk about it say they still listen to the music from it or it helped shape their musical identity or they married this person because they reminded him of <laughs> seth cohen or which we've heard um, a couple times a few times yeah um or like they go down there and try to find some of the you know some of the 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 pier, the, the diner, the beach. The they're not going to find the bait shop, but they can look. Um, that's really kind of been really gratifying. And so the podcast, the idea that um, we also got to hear from the actors mm-hmm. and their experiences and how much it meant to them as well. Because when these shows end, everybody feels like they're just trying to get out of there, you know, by yeah. the end, cast-wise. And so I think everybody now has had the opportunity to kind of appreciate that show as a, an important chapter in the sort of in their careers and lives. Yeah, and some of those things that we feel like we failed at at the end of the day, if you created something that people, you know, love watching and are still talking about 20 years later, maybe that's not a failure. <laughs> exactly. Um, I think it's not. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, and again, that's just also the fog of war, I think, when you're in it and you're just living and dying by all that stuff, you kind of, but now that we've had this opportunity yet to see the yeah. picture. Also, too, I would say the pandemic and how, like, streaming content, uh, content actually like helps sustain people mm-hmm. through a really, really difficult uh, period that especially early on, we were very much associated with like guilty pleasures, yes. you know, whether that was the OC or Gossip Girl or maybe even Chuck to some degree. But knowing that those were big pandemic rewatch shows and that they actually like help people feel grounded and safe mm-hmm. and comfortable in a scary time kind of reframes that notion of what a guilty pleasure is to something that's like just a pleasure and just yeah. makes you feel safe. I, I think and we got cozy. it. We literally, we literally won an award for the OC called the VH1 uh, Guilty Pleasure of the Year Award. And I remember <laughs> when we received it, I was like, is this good? Do we want to win this award? And now you're like, hell yeah, I would take them all. That I, I feel like, I mean, I hope that idea is just so dated, like of a guilty yes. pleasure. Yeah. Like yeah. life is too fleeting to worry about anything if it's like if it's pleasure like yes yeah. like as long as no one's hurt that's Pizza's fine. a yeah. guilty pleasure and yeah. god bless it yeah let's <laughs> let's enjoy things and I, and I was like i you know i don't know the, the 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 actual like feelings about it you know how it went down soap operatically behind the scenes of the soap opera but like when you see with this podcast you see ben mckenzie take time away from his anti-crypto crusade uh which i agree with by the way yeah to like you know reminisce about what the show meant to him i mean people people appreciate times in their life, especially when they have some perspective on it. Absolutely. And that's been really nice. And, and again, just reconnecting with everybody. And and I think everybody feels really good about it. And everybody still is identified with that show, you know, in, in a really significant way. And I think at first, for some of the actors, that was scary. Of course. Because you're yeah. like, am I going to ever be able to go on and do other things? But I think, you know, they've all proven 
that they can and have. Yeah, they can do ex nilo now, right? Like they can do the next iteration <laughs> yeah, of exactly. their band. Exactly. Um, did you see how I did that? Because that was a reference to City on Fire. That's why you're you. Do you guys, so we're, we're going to be posting this uh, today. We're recording it Thursday. Oh. Um, I believe episode five of City on Fire goes up tomorrow. Yeah. Or tonight, right? Or, or late tonight. Yeah. Um, like, yeah. And uh, that's five of eight total. Mm-hmm. You guys want to, um, again, no spoilers. Do you want to do like the the drive time DJ, like set up what's to come? You want to you like, any needle drops you're excited about? Anything that you should think people should get on the train now before it fully leaves the station on its way back to Long Island? There are trains and stations. I'm still trying to segue here. It's great. Um, No, Liz Garbus directs the next two episodes, five and six, and she did an incredible job. Five is sort of like our 1970s, like thriller episode where there's chases and intrigue and um, it feels really big. There's boats. God. Wow. I mean, you're talking about production things in terms of, of of like period pieces. There's a there's a you have a whole scene with a helicopter in the background and I'm just looking at the helicopter being like these motherfuckers got a helicopter. <laughs> like it's it's good to work for Apple sometimes, I guess. For it's, sure. Yeah. And I think uh for people who've watched the first four and are craving like I think four gets you to that place where you're like, okay, I really want to know like what happened. Um, these this next set of episodes really uh, dials that in so that the focus becomes clearer and the stories start, the characters start to um, interact with each other and their stories cross in ways that like feel really juicy and fun. There's wow. a big a big flashback coming up in um, in episode six. Uh, that takes us back to the 80s. What was the 60s in um, in the book? Oh, man, even better. That really hurt our heads to try to figure out the math of like, so if they're younger in the 2000s, and you're like, oh, God, it's actually not that long ago. I do this I mean, somebody just did that, right? If Marty McFly went back in time today, he would go back to 1993. It's horrific. Yeah. And yes, I do this all the time <laughs> in my head, and it's not, it's not great. Yeah. Um, well, I'm excited to see where the show goes from here. City on Fire is on Apple TV Plus, um, I love every opportunity to talk to you guys, and I'm sure I'll see you on the picket lines, and then hopefully we'll see you on our screens once all this is resolved with whatever comes next. Thanks, Josh and Stephanie. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.